All right, I got 629. We'll get everybody in here and get started. Thanks for coming out on a cold winter's night. I do have a request, uh, something uh, I was asked to bring up, and uh, Friday night is the ladies' tea. The tea tickets are all sold out, but we could use a few more guys serving. If you would like to volunteer to serve, I'm going to serve. I could use a couple more guys to help, and if you're interested in that, you can uh, let me know after church tonight. It'd be need to be here like 6 o'clock on Friday night, stay until we get cleaned up, and if you're interested in that, let me know afterwards. Two more sessions. It's a 12-week study, 12 nights, and I don't know how many of you have been here for the whole time. How many of you have been to every session? Raise your hand. So I appreciate you coming to this. And I announced it a couple weeks ago, but maybe everybody didn't hear. I've decided that next semester I'm going to do a 12-week Ken Ham study. I want to do something different. Um, I'm going to do a 12-week Ken Ham study. It's about 20 minutes of a video by Ken Ham uh, from the Creation Museum. And it all goes, it's called Foundations. What would happen if you removed the first 11 chapters of Genesis? Because what we're seeing in the church nationally is a lot of churches are removing the first 11 chapters and then wonder why the church is in trouble. So we're going we're gonna to deal with that for 12 weeks. It's a 12-week study, and uh, we'll be doing that next semester. By the way, we decided this week, next semester, we'll kick off on February the 6th, if you want to mark your calendars, and it'll last 12 weeks, go through the end of uh, April. Yeah, it'll be the last Wednesday night in April. So we've already got all that scheduled and worked out and starting to prepare for it. If you were here, not last week, last week was Thanksgiving break. If you were here two weeks ago, you know about the faith heroes that have gone before us. The Bible in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews lists a series of names. And there are heroes. Um, they're not just heroes because we think they're heroes. The Holy Spirit had them listed as heroes. That's a pretty good resume. So... Um, let's start with prayer, and then we'll dive in in, in uh, thinking about those guys. Father, uh, every week I've asked you the same thing. Open our minds to understand the Scriptures. You did it for your disciples. I believe you still do it today. So tonight we open up this wonderful book of Hebrews, and we seek to know you by knowing the Word and to know the Word is to know the Son, and to know the Son is to know the Father, and to know the Father's eternal life. So that's what we seek in Jesus' name. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 11, you find ordinary men. Here's where I want to start tonight. Too many times we read Bible stories and we think they must have been superhuman. And you'd be wrong. They were just normal people. Just normal people. They were ordinary people who did extraordinary things because of faith. They believed. They believed God. And I came up with this definition two weeks ago when I read Hebrews 11. And I really read Hebrews 11. Here's my definition of faith. It's just my definition of faith based on Hebrews chapter 11. Here it is. 
to do what is right according to the Word of God. That's it. I believe that's what faith is, to do what is right according to the Word of God, which means all of those guys in Hebrews chapter 11, they all heard the Word of God. None of them had to guess what God wanted them to do. Nobody's guessing. You don't have to guess, God, what do you want me to do? They heard the Word of God, and they did what was right according to that Word. It's called faith. Do you doubt that? Do you doubt that definition? Because here's why. Go, go down the list. Look at every one of those guys and say, what if they had disobeyed? What if Abraham's in there? What if he didn't take Isaac to Mount Moriah? Noah's in there. What if he said, I'm all in, but I ain't building a boat. You know, all doing what is right according to the Word of God. So they received the Word. They believed the Word was from God. And they followed that word by faith. Now, what's that got to do with us? You got one, too. You received the word. Don't think you got to get it in audible form. What if we, what's the first verse in Hebrews? In the past, God spoke in various ways in different times to different people. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. How? When Jesus comes back in Revelation, his name is the Word of God. In John chapter 1, what's his name? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So if you're waiting for something, you need to quit waiting. You got the Word. Do what is right according to the Word of God. That's faith. The Old Testament heroes stand as witnesses. I'm going to read it to you. That's how this next chapter, it, the problem with chapter breaks is a lot of people read a chapter and then they wait a while and read another chapter and you don't really do this. You don't really put the two together. We just went through all these names in Hebrews 11 and I noticed something as you open up chapter 12, it says that the Old Testament heroes stand as witnesses against the present generation. They have set a standard. What's that mean? They set a standard of what faith is. So why? So that you'll, so the, so the modern world won't redefine faith like they've redefined marriage, like they've redefined a lot of things. Give it a new definition. Let's call faith believing in God. I'm going to tell you what. You go to a whole lot of churches. That, what's faith? You believe in God. Is that faith? That's not faith. That's a good place to start, but that's not faith. There will be a lot of people who are lost who believe in God. What's Jesus say? Many in the last day will say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. He said, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. They, they believed in God. Believing in God, the demons believe in God. But that's not faith. So, these heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, they set a standard. You know what that standard is? They set a definition of what faith is. So that you won't be deceived into somebody else telling you what faith is. Why, why is such a big deal about faith? Because the Apostle Paul says we're saved by faith. By grace, through faith. Well, you better know what faith is. If faith is what saves you, it's faith is a separation between heaven and hell. You better figure out what the definition is. So they've created this definition. 
The Hebrew writer wrote this book, this letter, in the time when the church was just beginning. And, and they, were, they were suffering. They were just getting started in this Christianity thing, and they were suffering for the cause of Christ. They needed to hear. They needed to hear of these faithful witnesses that had gone on before them with unwavering faith. So let, let me put it in perspective. This church thing's brand new, and there's not a whole lot of church people. When Apostle Paul goes out and goes out and he, he plants these churches on these missionary journeys, and there's not a whole lot of church people around. There's not a lot of encouragement, and they're under great opposition. They needed to know what it was to stand firm. They needed to know, they needed to know that they made it. They never wavered. They never gave up. And you know what? So do you. You know why the assembly of the body is so important? So you need to know that there's other people who aren't giving up too. I look back at these people in Hebrews chapter 11 and I say, you know what? They never gave up. They never wavered in their faith. And, and that encourages me. That, that makes me stronger. And when I look around the room and on Sundays and we gather together, I know there's a whole lot of people hanging on. It makes us stronger. That's what, that's what the assembly does. They needed to hear of the faithful witnesses that had gone on before them. I want you to notice specifically the transition. When you go from Hebrews 11 to Hebrews 12, the transition from the heroes of the faith to the current leaders are now under testing. So we've got this, these models of, Christi of, of, of godly faith. Now the new church is suffering. Verse 1, here we go, chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Who's he talking about? This is where you've got to read the two chapters together. He's talking about all those people who went in chapter 11. All those guys. We have this great crowd or cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us... Now that we're in suffering, we're the new church. Let us lay aside every encumbrance. I'm reading from the NASB on purpose. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the practical challenge of faith. Why? Why do we have that in Hebrews 12? Because the Hebrews 11 guys have all come and gone. They, they had their time, they had their calling, and they, they, they went to the grave faithful. They went to the grave faithful. And now here's the church. And the crowd of witnesses, the cloud of they're in heaven. Now, that brings up a question. I'm going to touch on it in a little while. I'm, right now, I'm just going to give you a teaser. Does that verse, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's a reference to the Hebrews 11 people who have already gone on. Can they see what's going on down here? That's the teaser, okay? We'll get into it in a little while. Set aside. So what's the advice? 
How, how, how are you going to finish with faith? How, how are you going to keep from being one of those casualties of war that you made it part of the way and then you, you, you fell out? Lay aside every encumbrance. Lay aside everything, anything that keeps you from doing what is right according to the Word of God. Let's focus on that for a moment. Lay aside anything that keeps you from focusing on what, what's the definition of faith? At least the one I came up with when I looked at 11. Doing what is right according to the Word of God. Anything that keeps you from doing what is right according to the Word of God, get rid of it. That's it. That verse says, anything that keeps you from doing what is right according to the Word of God, get rid of it. So let's give you some examples. Fear. What keeps you from doing what's right? Huh? Well, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of things. It's not one. It's not two. I can think of a lot of things. Fear. All right? How many times do you feel like God wants you to do something, but you're afraid? You think those guys in Hebrews 11 weren't afraid? A lot of them were executed because they did it. Uh, what about, let me, let me go to the other extreme. If, if fear's over here, idolatry's over here. I don't want to let go of that stuff. But it keeps me from doing what is right according to the Word of God. But I want it. It comforts me. It's in a, it, it's in a place that I desire to have comfort. Well, it's between you and God. It's an idol. That thing. Let go of it. Anything that keeps you from doing what's right according to the Word of God. What, what about, let's, let's go to another category. What about just self? Do you ever wonder why Jesus said, if anybody's going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. What if you are the thing that keeps you from doing what's right according to the Word of God? You know what that means? You've got to die to yourself. But I've gotten rather attached to me. I really don't want to die to myself because I really like myself. Do what is right according to the Word of God. What about money? And just, I'll give an example. If I, I'm going to irritate you. We're only in a few minutes, but, you know, tithing. Tithing. See, I'm convinced that God expects a tithe from the believers. 10%. Do what is right according to the Word of God. Well, I would, but I like that money. Set aside sin. It will only get us tangled up in this race of faith. I didn't write it. He said, you got to set it aside, whatever that is. And you know what? Here's the deal. The thing that you struggle with might not be the thing I struggle with. And I struggle too. You think I don't struggle with some stuff? Every one of us, it's unique. It's individual. We, we've got this little chink in our armor, and Satan knows where that thing's at. And that's where he's going to get you. That's where he's going to try to get in. And whatever that thing is, you got to set it aside. You've got to be willing to say, uh-uh, no. I'm going to do what's right according to the Word of God. It's my experience, and, and I, I have people come in for counseling all the time. Sometimes they just show up and come in for counseling. And 90% and, and of the time, 90% of the time, they know what's right. I'm like, why are you asking me? You already know what's right. 
Almost never, almost never does somebody, do I have to tell them what's right. They know what's right. They don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. If you do what is right, according to the word of God, it's faith. Just do what's right. And anything that's keeping you from doing what's right, get rid of it. That's what this is telling us. Look up. And then he says something else. Look up. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Look up. You know what? When, I say, when, I, when it says look, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, I think it's a picture of get your mind off of the now and the present and the temporary and get your eyes on the future. Get your eyes on the future. These people, Abraham, Noah, these people, they were all future-oriented. They were willing to surrender the temporary in exchange for the permanent. And then Cain shows up in that story, and he does the opposite deal, doesn't he? He, 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 trades, uh, he trades the future for the right now. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look up. See that which waits on the other side of the finish line. We have a high priest in front of us that is the author of faith. Now, the Bible specifically says in several translations, it translates the same way. He is the, Jesus is the, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How is he the author of faith? I want you to think about it. What did we just come through in Hebrews 11? All the faith guys. And here's 12 Fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep looking at Jesus. Whatever's going on in your world, just keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the author of faith. Don't, don't look at Moses. Don't look at Abraham. Don't look at Noah. Don't look at old Samson. Look at Jesus. He's the author. The faith of Abraham, the author is Jesus. So look at him. How's he the author? When Jesus comes to the earth, do you think Jesus walked by faith? Some people think, well, you know what? He's God, so this was real easy for him. You're wrong. You're wrong. You know what the book of Hebrews says? God made him like us in every way. You think when he went into the wilderness and for 40 days he's tested by Satan? You think that's easy? He suffered. But you know what? What did he do in the wilderness when Satan was there tempting him? He did what was right according to the word of God. He's the author of faith. He is the originator of faith. He is the measurement of faith. And it says, look at him. When you want to know what faith is, look at him. Satan tried to do to him what he did to the first Adam, but he wouldn't go for it. Jesus is not only the perfect high priest, but he also had to endure suffering. This is important. He's the perfect high priest, but do you think he had to endure suffering between his calling of God, the Word of God, and the finish line? He was filled with suffering. He was full of suffering. Why, why did he suffer? Did you catch it? I'll read it again in the NLT in a minute. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, suffering its scorn and shame. Why? For the joy set before him. You know what Jesus got his eyes on? Finish line. You know what's at the finish line for Jesus? He sits at the right hand of the Father. But he's got to go through the suffering, through the cross, to get to the right hand of the Father. 
and you do too. What did he say? You must deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. Now, you might not be crucified. It's highly unlikely you'll be crucified on a tree. But if you follow Christ, you will suffer. To some degree, you will suffer. Somebody's going to come against you. Now, I want to read it from the NLT. <coughs> First two verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. There's people watching the life of faith. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Especially the sin that so easily tra- trips us. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this. How do I run with endurance this race? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, Jesus, because of the joy awaiting him. What's that? That's the right hand of the Father, right? Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he's got the what? The reward. Now he's seated in the place of honor in God's throne. So I'm going to ask everybody a question tonight, and I asked myself this before I started. What's keeping you from running the race full speed? What is it? Run the race. Run the race. Don't, don't walk the race. Run it. What's keeping you in from, from running the race full speed? Self, fear, family, pleasure, suffering? I know a whole lot of people that think, well, you know, I don't really like to be so vocal about Jesus because people, you know, it's kind of like talking politics at Thanksgiving. It makes for a bad lunch. (laughs) Are you running this race to win or just to finish? Is there a difference? Are you all in? So let's pause in Hebrews, jump over to 1 Corinthians because Paul talks about this race thing. 1 Corinthians 9, don't you realize that in, every, that in a race, everyone runs? Now, he's, talking about, he's using a metaphor to a physical race. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? you got a winner, right? So run to win. Now he's talking about Christianity. Run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that'll fade away and get dusty and somebody will throw out. Right? But they, they run hard to get that trophy, to get that prize, which is going to mean nothing in a little while. <clears throat> but we do it for an eternal prize. So I, Paul, run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. There are physical disciplines, spiritual disciplines that we need in the church. One of those disciplines is prayer. You need to have disciplined prayer life. You need to have a disciplined Bible study life. You need to have disciplined, on purpose, service in your life service which means you you determine that a certain part of your life is going to be externally focused 
Three things. I always list, when somebody comes and talks to me, I'm going to say, what, three, what are you doing with these three things? Tell me about your Bible study. Tell me about your prayer life. And tell me what, what part of your life is focused on somebody besides you or your immediate family. Come on, tell me. And I can tell you, I can give you, I, I, I can take your spiritual temperature. Three things. You know what happens when you do the number three? Your eyes go off of you. And it's a blessed thing. So when you're feeling sorry for yourself, go serve somebody else. And at least while you're doing it, you won't be feeling sorry for yourself anymore. Until you're done. Then you come back and feel sorry for yourself later. Run for your life. This is a race metaphor. Why am I running? Run for your, run for your life. That's what we used to say to each other as kids when we were scared. Run for your life. Run for your life! I still say that to the grandkids. And I say that they scatter like rats. Run for your life! Jesus is watching the race right now from the right hand of the Father in heaven. Let me just bring it into some uh, uh, observation. Jesus has watched us run the race this last week. He knows everybody how you're doing in the race right now. So when we're surrounded by a great crowd, cloud of witnesses, he's the one watching He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's watching, and he's cheering for us to run. He's not up there thinking, oh, he's a loser. No, he's cheering for you. He's, he's on your side, and he wants you to run by faith, but run with passion. He's the champion. He's the author and perfecter of faith. And he wants you to do what he did. And he doesn't just do it from the right hand of the Father. He is the Holy Spirit that comes and moves inside of us to enable us to live a life of faith. Why? For the joy that awaits us on the other side. Run for your life. For the joy that awaits us across the finish line. Run for your life. I don't really, here's, here's the answer to the teaser. And I have, believe it or not, this is one of those questions a lot of people ask me. I don't think Abraham and Noah and Moses are watching us from heaven. I don't think they are. I think they've got way better things to do than watch us from heaven. In fact, somebody says heaven is a blissful place. I'm thinking if they could watch this down here, it probably wouldn't be so blissful. Now, the angelic realm, different story. God the Father, the Son, different story. I think they see everything here. But if you ask me, and by the way, I can't, I can't biblically prove that to you. Uh, I go to funerals, and, and, and I, please don't take offense to this. I'm not trying to offend anybody. But I go to funerals, and somebody says, ah, he's there watching us now. And I'm thinking, I doubt that very seriously. <laughs> and I sure hope he's not. But I don't say that. <laughs> so when it says that we're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, there is a heavenly host. There are the elders. There are the, the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim. There is the Father. There is the Son. and not, Nothing escapes their vision. But I, I really, I don't think my grandparents are watching me. I think one day I'll meet my grandparents, and they'll be my grandparents, exactly who they were when they left here. 
but I don't think they're watching me in the meantime. Jesus knew in advance that the cross was between him and the finishing line, and he still ran. Here's the biggest point tonight. Jesus knew in advance that the cross stood between him and the finish line, and he never stopped running. There's one point in the Bible in the NLT. He says he turned resolutely to Jerusalem. Resolutely. I always thought, I don't know if I'd walk so fast to Jerusalem, knowing Jerusalem's got a cross for me. But he knew that on the other side of the cross was the glory of the right hand of the Father. So he went to Jerusalem. I'm going to tell everybody in the room today, Jesus says that you, he will share with you what the Father has given him if you will walk by faith. So the same thing in some regard that he got, you're going to get. You're going to be joint heirs with Christ. You know what that means? You share everything he's got. So the joy awaiting us on the other side of the finish line is the same thing that he was waiting on. We're not going to be Jesus. We're not going to be at the right hand of the Father. That's his role. But what, we're, what we are going to receive will be worth the suffering. It will be worth the hardship. It will be worth whatever that is. It will be worth it. So keep your eyes on him. So let's go to verse 3. Think about, and this will tell you where he's going, where the Hebrew writer's going. Think of the hostility. So what's the point? Some of you aren't going to make it. He's trying to prepare them for the battle. Think of the hostility he endured, Jesus, from sinful people. And then you won't become weary and give up when they get hostile towards you. And after all, you have not yet given your lives in the struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. We're going to get into that in some detail. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. Have you ever wondered, here's where I want to go with that. Have you ever wondered why God allows suffering? persecution, hardship, he could stop it. He could stop it anytime he wants to. Why? He's preparing you for eternity. He's shaping your character, forming you right now, forming you in a crucible of fire so that you'll, be, so that you'll make it across the, prom, the finish line toward the promised land. I have a feeling there are very difficult times ahead for the church before we cross the finish line. I do. In fact, if the Lord singularly is impressing anything upon Terry Cooper right now, this is it. It's kind of alarming, I'm going to tell you. He is impressing upon me every day. He's doing it. You better toughen up, and you better toughen the church up. So I'm telling you tonight, I think there's difficult times between us and the finish line. Up till now, following Jesus has not cost me my life, but it has cost many people their lives. I want you to think a couple weeks ago when I put that picture up here of those 21 Egyptian Christians. The name Jesus meant their heads coming off. Now that's not, that's not here right now. But it's 
It's a lot of places right now. And I admit, I admit openly to y'all tonight that there have been times when I, I feel like looking back, I was walking instead of running the race. I was walking when I should have been running. There have been times when I've taken my eyes off the prize and become temporarily distracted. But in those times, God's love disciplined me. Everybody listen, this is really big tonight. This might be the important point tonight. In those times when I felt, when I was distracted. I don't know how to describe it other than, you know what, it's so easy to get distracted. Let me tell you one of the things about church leadership. There is so much administrative role to what we do that it is so easy to get distracted. There's, you, you, I don't know if you realize how much administrative responsibility is a church of this size. It's a lot of administrative role. And some of that stuff can suck you in until you, 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 you miss the main point. And every now and then, I've got to get away from that. just got to clear out that stuff. But what I've noticed is when, when I start to get distracted, or maybe when I should be running and I'm walking, or I'm lollygagging, he disciplines me. Now, some of you, right now you're thinking, I don't even know what that would look like. He corrects me. His perfect love treats me as a child who doesn't fully know what's at stake in this race of life and death, heaven and hell. He, he treats me like a child that the daddy has to come and shake and say, it's time for you to wake up, young man. It's time for you to wake up. You're lollygagging. This is important. Now, here's where I'm going. I remember, this was the defining moment for me personally. I remember preaching a sermon years ago, and I was, I was studying the Word where God revealed something very important to me. There are many that have never had the discipline of a loving father. Now, in this room, more than likely, there are, there are people sitting in this room tonight that you cannot personally relate to the discipline of a loving father. Maybe your father was not loving. Maybe you didn't have a father in your house. Maybe you were raised by your mom. But in our generation, there are many people, especially now, many boys that were raised by their moms because of circumstance that never had the love and the discipline of a, of a, of a loving, godly father. There are many now, because of that background, that cultural shift that's going on, especially in America, there are many in the modern culture that reject the need for discipline in our modern age. They reject the need for any discipline, any corporal punishment, anything that might cause harm to little Johnny. It's rejected outright. You spank your kid in Kroger right now, you might go to jail. My, my father would still be doing time. I'm going to tell you, he, he wouldn't be out now. Because you know what? It, it's, but the culture has changed. And, and this is what I saw. I want to tell you what I saw when I was preparing this sermon some time ago. Those who have been raised never having experienced fatherly discipline are going to lack two things. Number one, they will never realize that our actions and choices have consequences. You will reap what you sow. We have an entire generation of American children who have now grown up who have no concept that actions have 
consequences. Because they have never, nobody in authority ever made it real. Went to school, not real. At home, not real. No consequences. Don't do that, Johnny, or I will. But they never do. They never do. Out, 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 but they never do. There's no consequences. So it's like everything that threatens me is a big bluff. Now, let me tell you where we're going. That that, that transfers from a physical to a spiritual reality. That all this heaven and hell thing's a giant bluff to keep everybody in line. He's not really going to do it. No, he really, no, he really doesn't do that. Number two, they will never realize that pain and suffering comes from rebellion. Pain and suffering. Rebellion equals suffering. It's a God law. It's a God law. Rebellion equals suffering. Well, we've got an entire generation of kids who've grown up that rebellion never equaled suffering. Rebellion equals rebellion. A loving father will always teach their children these two important life lessons. Your actions and your choices have consequences. Why? Because you do not live unto yourself. There is an authority beyond you. When I was a child, it was my daddy. Right now, it is my heavenly father. There is an authority above me. I do not live unto myself. And there will be pain and suffer, suffering associated with rebellion. Now, i got to tell you, my earthly father taught me both of these in a real way. In a real way. And because he taught me, I have never had trouble believing that my heavenly father would also discipline his children. But I know the church is full of people who cannot grasp the idea that God disciplines his children. No, he wouldn't. That'd be mean. You're a mean father. Why? Because they, they, kids grew up without a real father that loved them can't imagine a heavenly father that equals discipline because they never saw it. They never experienced it. It was never connected or associated with love. So let's go to verse 7. As you endure this divine discipline, who's that? That's from God. Remember that God is treating you as his own children. Now I'm going I'm to insert a word here. It's going to be a really important word. Legitimate children. There are illegitimate and there are legitimate children. When it says, as you endure this divine discipline, remember, God is treating you as his own children. God's treating you as if, he's not treating you like you're illegitimate. In fact, the opposite is true. If you're not being disciplined by God, you are already considered illegitimate. Stay with me. Stay with me. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined by his father? Well, I could raise my hand and say, we've got a whole culture of it now. If God doesn't discipline you as he does, if God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his, what? Creation? That's not what it says. All of his children, all of his legitimate children, it means that you're illegitimate. 
Now, I'm going to tell you, you want, you, want, you want something that changes your perspective? If God doesn't discipline you, it means you're illegitimate in his eyes. You're not his real child. I'm not likely to spank somebody else's child. Especially in Kroger. <laughs> not going to happen unless I can get behind the car. Why? Because it's not my child. Let me read it again. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Go ahead. In other words, you're in rebellion. Go ahead. Go. 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 Since we respect our earthly fathers who discipline us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits? He's disciplining my spirit so that I can live forever. I'm going to tell you, I am, I am thankful for my father's discipline. My father was a very strong discipline, disciplinarian. And by the way, today my dad's 85 years old, and he's my best friend. So those of you who think that that fouls up the relationship between a father and a son, you have no clue. You have no clue. My father and I are closer now than we've ever been. You know, I had, you know, when you're raising a child, you, you have to have that distance, the authority distance. But once you grow into adulthood, you don't have to have that distance anymore. You can be friends. You, you know, we're, he's still my dad. You still have to treat him like your dad. But now he's, he's not just my dad. He's my friend. But, but here's my dad. My dad was only going to have legitimate children. Can anybody hear where I'm going? And he's legitimately going to be the father, and I'm legitimately going to be the son. And there's not going to be any confusion about what that means. Legitimacy. Illegitimate, what does it mean? Now, this is big. If you want to connect Hebrews, I want you to go to John chapter 8, because Jesus describes the illegitimate children. Now, I think it'll mean more if I tell you this up front. Have you ever wondered why unbelievers seem to do so well in some areas of life? God lets them go. The very thing that would destroy you, let's just, I'm going to take money. I'm going to just pull something out of a hat. Money. You're his child. Money would destroy you, so he needs to limit your access to it. It's his divine discipline. But this unbeliever over here, so you're thinking, well, dang, I'm poor. I'm, he's restricting me. He's disciplining you. He's, he's a father controlling the environment around you, building your character. But these illegitimate children, well, they're over here. They're millionaires. They're not his children. You doubt what I'm saying? Okay, now I'll read it to you. Jesus says in John 8, 33, but we're descendants of Abraham. You know what they're saying? I'm legitimate. They're looking at Jesus and saying, I'm legitimate. We're the children of Abraham. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you, Jesus, are going to set us free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And here he comes, here he comes. And then Jesus qualifies what a slave means. A slave is not a permanent member of the family. You're illegitimate. You're hanging around the house, but you're not a legitimate child. A slave 
What do you mean we're slaves? A slave has no permanent place in the family. Are you with me? But a son, that's legitimate. A son is part of the family how long? Forever. You see the two? There's legitimate children and illegitimate children. Verse 36. So if the son, if Jesus, Jesus, if I set you free, you're truly free. Yes, I realize. Jesus looks at these Jewish people. I realize that you're descendants of Abraham. I, I recognize your genealogy, your bloodline makes you of Abraham. And yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I'm telling you, what I saw when I was with my father, Jesus is like that, I am legitimate. I'm telling you what I saw when my father and I were together. But you are following the advice of, here it comes, here it comes, your father. Oh, that's a different one. That's a different one. And the reason you're associated with a different father, which makes you illegitimate in association with Jesus' father. Verse 39, our father's Abraham. They didn't like that, did they? And Jesus declares, no. Boy, you don't want to ever hear this. I'm going to tell you what. You better never hear Jesus say, your father's not Abraham. Even church people, Christian you know what? We're adopted into the family of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the faith. He is the father of the children of God. Children of God. Church age, Old Testament age, Abraham. And if you're out of Abraham's family, you're out of luck. You're out of luck. And they says, we're children of Abraham. Our father is Abraham. Jesus says, no! No, you're not. You're illegitimate children. But we have the bloodline. You're illegitimate. For if you were really the children of Abraham, what would you do? You would follow my example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such things. No, you are imitating your real father. Illegitimate. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. And Jesus told them, if God were your father... You would love me. Why? Pause. I want you to you gotta figure out the answer to that question. Jesus looks at these illegitimate children. They've got the genealogy. They got the bloodline. They got the law of Moses. But they're illegitimate. If God were your father, you would love me. Why? Because I would be your brother. And if I'm your brother, we got the same father. That means you have to be legitimate. But they don't love Jesus. You know why? Because they got a different father. And the very idea that they have rejected Jesus proves they don't have the same father. Because if Jesus were your brother, you'd love him. If God were your father, you would love me. Because I have come to you from, I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you realize what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are children of your father, the devil. You're illegitimate. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He always hated the truth. There's no truth in him. And when he lies, it's consistent with his character. For he's the liar and the father of lies. So when I, Jesus, tell you the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. 
Let me make it simple. I'm going to hold it up. Illegitimate children refuse to believe Jesus. Jesus is the Word. The Word is Jesus. When you refuse to believe the Word, you are an illegitimate child. Legitimate children believe Jesus, and they accept the discipline of the loving Father. Now, what, what, why, do, why do I have to put the discipline in there? That whole scripture was to try to prove there's two groups of people. There's legitimate and illegitimate children. If you are in the room tonight and you are a legitimate child of God, He is going to discipline you. And that's a good thing. Because His discipline is love. Hebrews 12, 9. Here we go. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they know. But God's God discipline is always good for us so that we might share what? What's His discipline lean us toward? Sharing in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable when it's happening. Can I get an amen? Amen. Uh, no discipline is enjoyable when you're in the middle of it. It's painful. But afterward, there will be peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Right living. What's my definition of faith? Doing what is right according to the Word of God. It takes discipline. Let me ask you a question, because this happens a lot. Have you ever read this book and felt offended? Have you ever read this book and felt like it had just rebuked you? Do you submit to the discipline of this book? Because I've got to admit something. When I read this book... I read it as if it is the standard of authority. It is the standard of God's authority. And if I don't align with this, it offends me. But then I'm left with a decision. My decision is I can go, oh, you think you are, or I can submit myself to the authoritative discipline of the Word of God. Or I can reject it. I can be a legitimate child who loves the Word. Or I can be an illegitimate child who rejects the discipline of the Father. People want, people want to make this thing complicated. I don't think it's complicated. I don't think it's easy. God's discipline is to draw us to holiness. And holiness is to do what is right according to the Word of God. It's called faith. A peaceful harvest of right living. It's called faith. It's the result of God's discipline. This discipline is the training that reveals the race and the training that keeps you in the race running, not standing. So if you look at your life right now, are you standing or are you running? Look back. I want, you know, it's not my job to figure out how you're doing. I'm trying to figure out how I'm doing. If you look at your life in the last six months, are you running this race to win? Are you running this race just to try to get through the day? 
There's a difference. If you look at your life right now, are you walking when you shouldn't be running? It's interesting to me that Jesus, the very last of the seven churches in Revelation, is Laodicea. And he said, I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were either standing still or running. But because you've got this lazy walk, you've got this complacent middle, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm. What do you think lukewarm is? What is it? What is it? I'll tell you what, we all figure out what it is because he's going to vomit you out. It's this idea that I'm in a race and somehow I'm entitled to get a trophy when I get to the finish line. I walked, I'm going to walk across the finish line. The finish line, everybody's going to get to a finish line. There's one in front of me, there's one in front of you. We're in a race of life and death. And we're going to get to the line and, and, and either will be legitimate children or illegitimate children and women cross over. But we're running to win. This is big. This is run for your life. Verse 12. So here's his instruction. I love how the NLT translates this, by the way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Suck it up. That's what they used to say. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Come on, let's go. That's what he's saying. Let's go. Let's go. If you're lukewarm, get over it. Let's go. What is a straight path? Notice what he says. He says, mark out a straight path for your feet. Well, what does it mean? It is a straight path of discipline. The path of the one that listens to godly counsel. Proverbs outlines it in pretty good detail. Proverbs 4, my child, and my child, pay attention to what I say. Listen carefully to my words. Don't lose sight of them. Let them penetrate deep into your heart. For they bring life to those who find them and healing to their whole body. Guard your heart above all else. For it determines the course of your life. Avoid all perverse talk. Stay away, away from corrupt speech. Look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. Do what is right according to the Word of God. The straight path is the shortest route to the finish line. Always is the shortest path to the finish line. I have prayed a prayer over my children since they were babies. I still pray the same prayer. only thing I've added is my grandchildren's names to the same prayer. Lord, make their path straight. You know what it means to me? The shortest distance to the finish line. No zigzagging. No distractions. Their eyes fixed on you and walking towards you. It is the path of peace with God, peace with fellow man, and peace with yourself. Let's go to 14. Work at living in peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. 
make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, Esau, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. Work at living at peace, God and man. Work at holiness. Without holiness, no one will ever see God. And look after each other. Watch out. Guard your heart. Don't trade the eternal for the temporary and seek the blessing of the Father while there is time. Why? Because one day it will be too late. Esau, it was too late. Even with repentance, it's too late. Even though he's crying bitter tears, it's too late. Why did he put Esau in this story? Because there is a point of no return. I don't know where that's at. Don't ask me where that's at. I don't know where that's at. Then the Hebrew writer plain, paints a spiritual profound picture. This will be the last thing we do. I need to hurry. You have not come to a physical mountain. Nobody in here had to go to a physical mountain to receive Christ. You have not come to a physical mountain to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, as the Israelites did in Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast, a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened when God came and presented himself to the people of Israel there. He was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. And what's, how does this start? This is not what he asked you to come to. It's what Israel came to in the wilderness. Our God is a consuming fire. Everybody listen. Our God is a consuming fire, and no one will approach Him without the righteousness of God, which is the righteousness of Christ, received by faith. Even Moses was terrified. But we have a better covenant and better promises because we've got a superior high priest. Let's keep going. Verse 22. Here's here's our picture. That was the picture of Israel. No, you have come to Mount Zion. I really need to make this point. You have come to Mount Zion. When you came to Jesus, where is Jesus when you came to him? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's not on a mountain in the Middle East. No, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. When you came to Christ, when he called you and you turned by repentance, by faith, and and responded to his invitation, you were coming to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. You came, you have come to the assembly of God's firstborn, what? Legitimate children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. We don't have to go to Mount Sinai. We have a heavenly Jerusalem in front of us. By faith we have come to Jesus. The Word has revealed 
that which is right, and we believed the word. We have a better covenant with better promises. But I'm going to tell you, here's where it'll end tonight. We also have a warning. Verse 25. Be careful. Anybody think he's writing this to us? He is. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth, and now he makes another promise. Don't miss it. Here it comes. Here it comes. When he spoke on Mount Sinai, the people were so terrified because the earth shook at his voice. And he says this, once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heaven also. This is the prophetic future announcement. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things, legitimate children, will remain. It's a warning to all who refuse to listen to these words of God through Christ the Son in the last days. Israel didn't escape the words of God given through the earthly messenger Moses. And who do we think we are thinking will escape if we ignore the words of God given through Christ and the Holy Spirit in the Bible? There is a great shaking coming to the heaven, everybody listen, and to the earth. Those who have lived by faith will survive the shaking because they stand on the unshakable word of God. So I'm going to give you a summary and a final warning. Hebrews 12, 28. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping Him in holy fear and awe, for our God is a devouring fire. There's a great shaking coming in the last days. I want to read it to you. Revelation 6, 12. This is going to happen. It is unstoppable. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. And then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree, shaken by a strong wind. The sky rolled up like a scroll, and of the, and all the mountains and islands were moved from their places. And then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to survive the shaking. These are the illegitimate children. The heavens and the earth. It gets worse. You think that was it? Nah, that's not the bad one. Here comes the bad one. Revelation 16. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all those who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. And the demonic spirits, and the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place in the Hebrew named Armageddon. 
Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne of the temple, saying, It is finished. And then the thunder crashed and rolled, and lightning flashed, and a great earthquake struck. The worst earthquake since people were placed on the earth. The great city of Babylon split in three sections, and the city and the cities of many nations fell into a heap of ruins or a heap of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins, and he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island disappeared, and all the mountains were leveled. And there was a terrible hailstorm, hailstorm and hailstones weighing. Can anybody's mind grasp this? They weighed 75 pounds. Fell from the sky on the people below. The cur- they cursed God because of the terrible plague of the hailstorm. What's that do when I read that? It sobers me. You know why I want to run with you know why I want to run for this finish line? I don't want anything to do with this. And when people lose their fear of God, this makes our God is a devouring fire. And when people lose their fear of God, they lose their fear of sin. And sin becomes trivial because they have trivialized God. And they flirt with sin and they play with sin and they run with sin and act like it doesn't matter. You're saved by faith. Faith is doing what is right according to the Word of God. Yes, you'll fail. Yes, you'll stumble. But you'll never mock God by willfully rebelling against Him. That's what illegitimate children do. That's not what legitimate children do. Finally, Genesis 4-7. This is foundational truth. Um, here's the reason I want to read it. Do not let the world tell you what faith is. Genesis, this is Cain and Abel's story. God looks at Cain and says, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. If not, it'll master you. Finally, I want to repeat verse 10. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how, and for that I am grateful. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in His holiness. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the discipline You have given to me, to each of us in this room. For you discipline us as a loving father, correcting us, instructing us, guiding us, taking us off of the broken road and onto the straight path. Thank you for the mercy that has given us this love. And Father, may the finish line find us faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.